Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll look at verses 12 through 15. This is also the sermon text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is God's word. We've been going through 1 Thessalonians. If you're new uh, among us this morning, this has been our, our study since uh, August. And when we were in chapter 2 of this New Testament letter back uh, toward the end of August, we considered spiritual leadership then as well as we will now. Uh, and I called the sermons in chapter 2 the leaders we want. And there were two sermons, so it was a part one, part two, and today's message is called The Leaders We Need, just one sermon, but trying to keep some symmetry between what's in chapter two that we looked at earlier in this study, and now here we've got another emphasis on leaders and leadership. We've got a lot of one-liners in this text. We'll be completing this text, uh, this uh, chapter, and this letter in the next couple of Sundays, but um, looking at our text, I want you to note that the word admonish, at least how the English Standard renders it, it's twice used in our text. The leaders admonish all, verse 12, and then we admonish the idle, we being all of us. So there's a function of admonishment that belongs to leaders, verse 12, and then you notice in verse 14, all of us admonish the idle. So what I want us to do is uh, take these four verses from two angles this morning, as I, I usually like to do, and let's consider for our two angles, the takeaways under each one, we're going to consider the effect of admonishment, the effect with an E of admonishment, both as something, something that leaders do as well as something that we do with one another, and then let's consider second, the effect of peace and patience. So look in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, be patient with them all. All right? The effect of admonishment, that'll be our first consideration. Admonishment is in verse 12 and verse 14. And then we'll look at the effect of peace and patience. That's verse 13 as well as 14 again. And then 15 is kind of a swing verse. We'll come back to verse 15 as we uh, talk uh, the next couple of Sundays, but I wanted to include it in the reading this morning. So first, of two considerations. First, the effect of admonishment. Verse 12, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then verse 14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle. And so there's a function of admonishment that the leaders and by leaders, he's thinking elders of the church do. And then there's a function of admonishment that we do with one another. So let's talk about this. What does it mean to admonish? To admonish is to offer correction. 
slash advice slash warning, it's all three, to offer it, not to force it, but correction and advice and warning are often resisted. They're even rejected. We have an aversion to being corrected because we don't like it when somebody thinks we're wrong about something. We don't like the feeling that somebody is weighing our actions and finding them wanting. And so uh, we don't like unsolicited advice on those lines either. Nor do we usually heed warnings unless we are already convinced something is dangerous. But one of the ways that we grow spiritually is learning how to receive the correction that comes along with submitting to authority. Verse 12 gives us this from the angle of admonishment from leaders. Verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now one of the submission lines in the New Testament, the New Testament does talk about submission as a topic and there's about seven or eight lines of submission, relational lines. This submits to that. These submit to them. And one of those submission lines in the New Testament is uh, the church's submission to elders. The elders being the overseers, another term for New Testament leadership. Paul is thinking elders when he says, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He's thinking of elders. And so this is being presented to us, the church, as something we voluntarily give to those in spiritual leadership. And yet Western culture works against this and Western culture frequently seeps into Western church culture. Anyone I'm gonna respect or esteem has gotta earn it. You've heard that, you may even think that. We live in a culture that cherishes personal autonomy, meaning everyone should be their own authority. No one should tell anyone else what to do or think unsolicited. This is standard American cultural fabric. This is why many won't tolerate correction. Many won't tolerate warnings. And we're quick to think of authority abuses in our particular context. We, we're, we're wary of, of that happening to us and admonishment can be abusive. Uh, certainly when it is delivered with shame or ridicule, even when it's offered in the right spirit, it may not be accepted, but we know there's such a thing as heavy-handed leadership. There is high conformity, high control, church cultures, overbearing leadership, which creates more fear than respect or esteem. And of course, the leader who feels he has to ask for respect or esteem is also a sad reality. You might remember back in chapter 2, when we were there in August, looking at spiritual leadership from chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians, I cited back then cases of leadership abuse that brought down some high-profile pastors who, as it turns out, pushed around staff, pushed around congregation members. And you know, when you look at those guys' uh, lives and, and uh, consider them, you, you realize that none of those guys started out to be abusive, in fact, what they started out to be was amazing, and that was part of the problem. Because um, 
Leaders often grind people down in their quest to be amazing, to be amazing leaders over amazing churches. And, and in those contexts, admonishments become a fist under the chin. You know, do this or else. You're not going to make me look bad. That's an impoverished way to lead. Authoritarian leadership is in fact a moral failing. Admonishment is never bullying. Bullies are not the leaders we need. But we do need leaders who love us enough to tell us what we don't always want to hear. It's easy to respect and esteem leaders who tell you what you want to hear, give you what you want, finish your sentences, support the same things you do, champion causes dear to you. But some of those things do not give us more of Christ. And what we're desperately in need of in the church are leaders in Christ who have the courage to call us back to Christ when we are straying from him. Leaders who protect Christ-centeredness. So the instruction here in verses 12 and 13 assumes that leaders admonish the people we lead. I say we as one in a plurality of elders here, teaching elder. And I must say, by the way, looking at this text, really not as a by the way, I, I, I want this to be very much uh, part of the way of this message. I do feel esteemed in love those words in verse 13, and very highly by you, as it's put here in our text, verse 13. You do that well as a church. Uh, I want you to hear that from me in the context of this message. Yes, I've said some Sundays recently, this has not been an easy year, but you know what? We're all tired of this year, and we're all going to get through it, right? I'm okay. You're okay. Wasn't that a self-help book from the 70s, something like that? I wish I could say, uh, because of how well you've respected and esteemed me and my family, you know what, it's, you know what it's, it is for a pastor to be able to say to a congregation, I've been here 17 years and my children have never suffered here. You know what a special thing that is to say? And, and, and in a couple of cases, my children have had some very visible uh, faults that everybody's known about. And you have not treated them, you've not treated us, my wife or me, anything other than esteem and love. And I wish I could say that every time I've ever admonished you, and there's been times I have that I did that well, but I, I know myself and I know there have been times too much of me uh, got in the way of that. And I ask your forgiveness for that times when maybe you found me too strong. The gospel is the source and substance of church admonishment. Took me a long time to learn that. <laughs> because a lot of times, particularly for pastors, I mean, this is my workplace. You know, I mean, this is your church, but it's, it's my workplace. And you get frustrated with things at your workplace, and I get frustrated with things at, at my workplace. You know, I, I don't, I don't, come to church and, and just participate. I, I come to church and have to be on. I have to lead. And Sunday after Sunday, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's the way it is for me. It's a, it's, it's that, that's the experience of church that, that I have. And so admonishment um, is not, here's three problems I have with you. you know? That's venting. Uh, admonishment says, Jesus is our sufficiency. 
Jesus is our authority, and so let's align our creed and conduct accordingly. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets to invoke the familiar words of Hebrews 12. Let's put to death our idols, not justify them. We admonish with the gospel believed. It took me a long time to learn this, but I I hope I've learned it and am still learning that that is the work of church leadership, to keep Christ in the center. That's why we respect and esteem those, plural, who do that work, because those who do that work, we who do that work, a plurality of elders, the aim is to keep the church gospel-centered, which is what we'll be if we're Christ-centered. If I'm doing my job as a teaching elder, in my case, teaching elder, you're getting the gospel Sunday after Sunday, not just as a transaction with God we need to have, here's some truths you need to believe. You're getting the gospel also as a transformative declaration that our beliefs inform our behaviors and responses to the world. And and not just teaching elders like me do this, so do session elders and shepherding elders. We all promote Jesus Christ as the Lord of his church. That's our work. The leaders admonish the church with the gospel believed. At the heart of admonishment is keeping the call of Christ forefront. The Lord's calling on our life. His authority over us as a first allegiance. If this fades into the background because we get preoccupied with other things, other people, the gospel gets lost in the weeds, it's time to be admonished. That's how you know when you need it. The gospel is is not forefront. Christ is not in the center. It's time for admonishment. And admonishment, note the text. This is actually aimed at promoting peace. Verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves in this context of admonishment. So if, if admonishment comes across as I'm bothered by you and I want to vent at you, I want to give you my list of stuff I don't like about you, that doesn't take us to more of Christ. That takes us to discouragement and despair even. Rather, admonishment is, you know, I think we can make more of Jesus with one another and our neighbors this way. Here's what we need to correct in that interest. Here's where our words and our deeds are out of alignment. Here's where we're relationally off, unhygienic, and we need to change that. Admonishment is not always looking for what's wrong, what needs correction, and you can't wait to give it. That's an unhealthy interest in correction, and it it just burns people when you do that. Leaders who always find something wrong in the church Leave a church starved for encouragement and a sense of love. There's leaders who will leverage power to correct, and they'll call it love, you know. Somebody needs to love you enough to tell you these things about you. That's the only time we hear you love us, when you're on this power trip to correct us. Doesn't feel very loving because it's not. (laughs) Years ago... I wrote a parting letter to a pastor I'd worked for. I'm really embarrassed to tell you this, but I'll tell it on myself as an example of what not to do. 
This pastor I worked for had been very good to me, but I held a couple things against him. I was more like that back then. And plus, I'd taken up the offense of others in the church. Uh, I, I had I'd been a soft ear for critics of his in the church. Wish I could go back now and change that. But at the time, I was a bit more full of myself than I am now. Troubles and suffering will knock a lot of yourself out of you. And I thought it my Christian duty, walking out the door to another church where I was headed, I I thought it my duty to give him correction. In love, of course. So courageously, I wrote a letter. He called me when he received it and offered no refutation except to say, Cole, I grieve for you, brother. And that jarred me, that response of his. That's all he said. His words turned over in my head and I eventually realized the resentment that I carried toward him was totally on me. It was nothing he did. And my letter was for my spleen. It wasn't for his heart. I wanted to correct him. I wanted to craft those words. And his telling me, I grieve for you, he was not pitying me. It was lament. I see that now. Lament for a younger brother, younger than him, who didn't yet know how to love my brother through his faults. I did not have a way to me back then that promoted peace and patience near enough. And that's our second takeaway. The effect of peace and patience with one another and everyone else also. Looking at verses 14 and 15 now. And we urge you, brother, verse 14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The whole rest of this chapter is going to be like this, one-liners. Verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Thinking about now this uh, second use of, admo- of admonishment that we've got in verse 14, this admonish the idle. By idle is meant disruptive. You think of idle and you think lazy. But this word for idle really comes across as, uh, as disruptive, uh, disorderly, undisciplined. But it is disruptive is, is, I think, the best word. And, and who are the disruptive? They, those who are not promoting peace and patience. Those for whom peace and patience in the body is secondary to them making their personal point. Now, I know in the business world today, there is an affirmation of disruptors. A lot of you in business and you've, you've uh, read the latest stuff and, and disruptors are championed. In fact, I was watching a, a college football game and one of the uh, university uh, ads uh, was uh, talking about how uh, what we create, thinkers, you know, such and such, and disruptors. Yeah, that's, what we, that's what we send out there. Because disruptors, the glory of disruptors is that they, they keep you from... Um, you know, they, they help you break out of the status quo. They ask the questions nobody else wants to ask. And so if you're a CEO, yeah, you, need to, you need to appreciate the disruptors because they're, they're keeping the business honest. They're trying to, uh, to, to get us past uh, what holds us back. That is not this in this text, okay? 
The idle here are disrupting the peace of the body needlessly. And when you think about the lengths to which God has gone to establish the peace of the body through the blood of his own son, the peace of the body is not something we take for granted or treat lightly. The idle are picking at it. They're not helping, nor are they getting anything accomplished themselves, really. I mean, they wouldn't do any better than those they're complaining about or critiquing. They wouldn't. They would not do any better. They're just stirring things up. They find fault, the idle do, and rather enjoy finding it. A lot of them seem to. It's very self-justifying for them. They, they like that sense of being right. But look, it's just at those points where we are the most self-justifying that we need again the admonishment of the gospel. And the gospel comforts us and encourages us, but the gospel also admonishes us, does it not? That we have peace with God and God's patience for us because of Jesus but the disruptive misplace that and thereby don't keep peace with others, don't show patience with others. They've got quick cutoff points. You didn't, you won't, so I won't, I, we're, we're out. In pastoral work, I, you know, I'm ringside to the ways people hurt each other, not just in the church, but within families. Emotional manipulation Uh, People have sat in my study in tears telling me about, for instance, a parent leaving a note on the windshield of their car, their parent, leaving a note on the windshield of their car, their child's car, ripping, blasting their spouse for not making them feel more welcome when they visit. The damage that does. Or I remember one, the aunt wrote her niece to criticize the way her sister, now deceased, raised her. That she raised her liberal. What good does that do? And yet it's done in love, love in Christ, your aunt. And now the aunt actually wonders why the niece wants little to do with her. Go figure. You crushed her. I mean, it's all you can do sometimes, I'm being real personal here, but it's all you can do sometimes to not say to somebody, well, the reason that's working out that way for you is because you're an idiot, you know. But that's not very pastoral. You can't say that. I say that to myself a lot. The uh, Cole is an idiot discussion in the mirror is often had. And I've had it with the guys out there on the wall, all the pastors on the wall. What did you do, Stevens, when you felt like people were idiots, you know? What did you do? We've had that discussion late at night. Uh, I stand there before their portraits and say, how'd you handle this one, chief, uh, when, when you were here? St. Augustine wrote, my true brothers are those who rejoice for me in their hearts when they find good in me and grieve for me when they find sin. They are my true brothers because whether they see the good in me or evil, they love me still. And to these I shall reveal what I am. Because to these, they're trustworthy. The people who want peace and patience are trustworthy. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Notice the action verbs here. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do you notice that these action verbs in verses 14 and 15 are all nurturing? I'm putting everything here under the heading of the effect of peace and patience. And I appreciate the honesty of the Bible. That not everyone in the church is going to have it together. You may think you have it together. And you may. You may be right about everything you think. You may think you know what this person needs to do. And that person. And the leaders. And so on. And you might be right. But these action verbs here in verses 14 and 15. They're all nurturing. There's a goal to them. It's a redemptive goal. It's getting more of Christ's goal. Even admonishment. Seeing, I, I hope you see as a result of this message that admonishment is about getting us back to Jesus under his authority if we stray from that. But there are those in the church who destroy peace. That's the idol. There are those who are faint-hearted. Verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. Don't tell them to cheer up. Don't tell them to don't worry. Optimism doesn't encourage them. It sounds dismissive of their sorrow and their struggle. What is encouragement to the faint-hearted is the strength and power of Jesus and how we find his word trustworthy and that just as he walked out of the grave, so will he also walk on the clouds when all is said and done or we ourselves are said and done, call us to himself. Faint-heartedness conveys kind of a world weariness. You've just had enough. You're tired. That doesn't need optimism. It needs the encouragement of gospel hope, which is anchored to Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. I said earlier, it bears repeating, the gospel is the source and substance of church admonishment. Well, it's the same thing with encouragement. The gospel is the source of that. And with help, Help the weak, verse 14. And the gospel is the source of patience. The verbs here in verse 14 as well as in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Why not? Why can't I repay someone evil? How could I be evil toward you? How could I tear you down? How could I treat you like you deserve condemnation when that's precisely what Jesus has not done to any of us here? You know, one of the marks of getting it, and I, I use this term cautiously, getting the message of the gospel to say, I got it, I understand. One of the marks of that is you see a list of imperatives like we've got here in the second half of chapter five, the list of do's and do nots in the New Testament. There's plenty of these lists. And when you understand the gospel, you, you start to see these lists, not as things I must do and things I must not do because they're in the Bible. So here's what I got to deal with. So much as you begin to see reflections in each imperative of how God has treated us in Jesus. It makes a huge difference. We may struggle to show peace and patience with each other and others at every turn. But in Christ, we know the turns Meaning we know what is expected of us. 
because we know what has been shown us already in God making peace, keeping patience with us forever. This is an instruction for morality's sake, being good for goodness' sake. This is patterned on gospel guarantees. Can I promote for another, even if they bother me, even if they disappoint me, even if they infuriate me? Can I promote for another the peace and patience Jesus has shown me? You know, without that, without these imperatives connecting to what Jesus has done for me and now, and now my response, without connecting that, this is all just bricks in my pack. This is just more stuff I can't live up to and do. But this instruction, every line of it, comes into focus looking at the life and ministry of Jesus himself. And then you go, oh, I get it now. I, I see why you want me to be this way. Why you want me to do or not do. Because that's who Jesus was. And if I want him, and I think I do, then I also want to be with others as he was and is. I want to conform to his truth. I want to do it. I want to display his truth, even if and when it proves difficult. <laughs> and it will. It will. But ultimately, he's the leader we need. He doesn't ask us to render him the impossible. You know that? The most difficult thing that could be asked of you or me is to please God on our own. It's the most difficult thing that could be asked of you or me. Achieve the flawlessness of Jesus. Simply just go out and do that. But that's not what he's asked of you or me. And so because he covers my flawedness with his flawlessness, I can give myself to what apostles instruct me to in his word and where church leaders, elders chime in with that and, and ask me to do as part of a congregation, fellow disciples, as we seek the Lord together. We want to render to Jesus the most praise and glory we can give him. All our flaws and weaknesses and faint-heartedness notwithstanding, he keeps standing with you and with me. The satisfaction of knowing and serving a non-reluctant Savior. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Thank you for how you do that. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, the disruptive, encourage the faint-hearted, the world-weary. Help the weak. It's safe to be weak in a place where what we have in common is grace. Be patient with them all because God has been patient with us and continues to be. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. For Jesus' sake, because of him. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, would you help us uh, to not see one-liners as uh, a popcorn machine of truths thrown out there hoping something sticks? Uh, Lord, help us to see that every one of these stick 
because of who Christ is and how each one of these imperatives reflect his character and his kindness. Uh, Lord, help us in our multiple weaknesses to continue to draw near to you, to draw near to one another, to find true brotherhood and true sisterhood in the fellowship of this body, to find peace here. It's, a, it's, an, it's an experience of your blessing, the well-being of the church and peace, to find patience, which doesn't mean, Lord, that we don't confront or challenge or correct. I thank you for how context brings so many things together that we want to hold separate. But Lord, do help us to ensure in our actions and reactions with one another and those on the outside that Christ is in the center and that we, we affirm with the gospel, we admonish with the gospel that a Christ-centeredness takes over like a wave just washes over us Sunday after Sunday and Monday through Saturday and that at the end of every year we remark this year has seen growth in Christ and I love him more and I desire him more and I'm looking to him and for him more. Lord, would that be uh, our praise to you as every year comes to a close of what you've accomplished in us in bringing us into greater, greater union with your son. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, your mercies that are new every morning, and your faithfulness. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.